Tonight's program has been specially designed as a celebration of the human voice and the spoken word as a powerful, emotive, and engaging form of entertainment. In partnership with the Communication Studies Department and the Theatre Department here at Northeastern, I am proud to present these selections for your listening pleasure. A special thank you to Antonio Campos-Guzman, Stephanie Hetrick, my stage manager Elaine Mangalinks, and our recording engineer Kai Sao and recording editor Andrew Will. Enjoy. During the 1930s and 1940s, the country was beset by the Great Depression and the impending war in Europe. While most people in North America were managing without most luxuries, and for some, the everyday necessities of life, radio, with its wide range of live music, comedy, variety shows, and dramatic programming, served as a welcome escape from those troubled times. This time period became known as the Golden Age of Radio. Night after night, families would gather around their radios and listen to the likes of The Shadow, Dick Tracy, Amos and Andy, Superman, Buck Rogers, and Gunsmoke. The radio gave folks the chance to imagine what their favorite characters looked like, and in many cases, how they would free themselves from their captors. These stylized and overly dramatic programs often gave the listener the chance to solve the murder or guess the ending during one of the many sponsored commercials. What you are about to hear are three five-minute murder mysteries, which were some of the most popular programs of that era. These three stories are actual scripts that were performed in the early 1940s. I would especially like to thank our multi-talented voice actors, Noah Bronstein, Liam Huff, and Tony Weisinger, for bringing these characters to life. And so now, turn up the volume on your listening device and enjoy Death Calls at Dinner, The Murder of Mrs. Brooks, and My Pal Patsy. Another five-minute mystery. An anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests, George Taylor, pauses while eating his dessert, saying, Mmm, best lemon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. Oh, really? I wish my wife could do as well. Hey, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head is practically in your plate. I guess he's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Sam, it's dreadful. I'd better shake him. Sam, Sam! <gasps> Great guns! He's dead! How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker, the Homicide Division. And this is one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Mmm. You might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Uh-huh. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. You mind telling me what happened? 
I guess not. I'm so shocked. I don't know where to begin or, or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you served for dinner. Well, uh, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom. And then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, and I served him coffee, but I don't see how this could mean anything. Just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Uh And when I tried to wake him, I found he's had a heart attack. Yeah. That will be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief. Can't say as I do. Neither do I. Let's look in this kitchen. An orderly person, isn't she? Stacked dishes after each course. Yes. And here's the silverware over here. Look, look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Black? Let me see it. The only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think that it was a heart attack or a perfect murder. But this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Barker? I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. Uh, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown. You will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. But first, a word from our sponsor. Headaches. We all get them. We all wish they would go away. There is a solution. Excedrin. I just take two and there's no more tension, no more throbbing, no more pain. My headache completely gone. Excedrin. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and the soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Ah, yes, I can see that. But she forgot one thing. To wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder, but she forgot to wash one... Spoon.
another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the program. Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household. Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible it's been so long. You and Dorothy married with a place of your own? Uh, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality sooner. Well, I'm here now, and I intend on having a perfectly wonderful time. Now, here we are. Oh, what a charming place this is. Dorothy is probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Darling, it's Jim. Here's Alice. <gasps> Jim, look. What? Where? There, on the living room floor. It's Dorothy. Dead. <laughs> Mr. Brooks, I'm afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions. I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector. Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while we're waiting for some information I phoned for... I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning. There, there's nothing much to tell. Both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice, that is, Miss Manning here, to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office. And you were there all morning? Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived and we came out here. I had written Mrs. Brooks to tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I arrived. The train was an hour late. Maybe if it had been here earlier, it... it may have prevented this. Hmm. <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. Apparently, Mrs. Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. The polish has spilled all over the carpet, and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker, and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials here on the floor with the polish. D-O-C. D-O-C? I wish we could tell whose initials she was trying to reveal. You're sure you don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I, I can't. <gasps> oh. Oh. Yes, Miss Manning. Can you think of somebody with those initials? Well, I... D-O-C spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brooks's nickname. Why, it can't be. Yes, Mr. Brooks. 
I haven't been called Doc for over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. You've got to believe me, Inspector. It's the truth. Hmm. Well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello. Yes, Grady. Yes, I see. Well, it's sewed up here anyway. Thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved. Oh, then, then it wasn't Doc after all. No, Miss Manning, it wasn't Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks. Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear. But first, this. Ladies, can't get those corns into that new pair of shoes? Introducing Corn Buster. You apply the cream over the bunion and within minutes, the deep penetrating solution forms a crust. With one simple wipe, you will be able to get your foot into those high heels, gals. Corn Buster. Now, back to our story. How dare you arrest me? I was still on the train. Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact. You came out here, murdered Mrs. Brooks, returned to the station, and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away, though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Duck when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time. Will there, Miss Manning? Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five-minute mystery. Another five-minute mystery. Our story takes place in Green's Gap, a small town in the Southern Cavern District. Green's Gap Hospital. Doctor Melville speaking. Doctor, doctor. There's been an accident out at Echo Cavern. Accident? What kind of accident? Two men was exploring and they got lost last night. One's unconscious. You better come quick. 
before he's dead. I hope you know how to get out to Echo Cavern, Lem. With the job of being town constable and ambulance driver, I reckon I know all there is to know about this county. Ever been in the cavern, Lem? Once, Doc Melville, when I was boy. Nearly got my hide tanned off by my paw. Echo Cavern is a mighty treacherous place. You mean it's easy to get lost in? Not only that, Doc. It's that, uh, cavern gas carbine something. You mean carbon dioxide? Yes, that's it. All of a sudden, you run into some of that stuff, and before you know it, bing, you're out. Still, people seem to go exploring there. Mm -mm -mm, More fools to be. I wouldn't go in them caverns, at least. Till I was not without a dog. A a dog? What for? Well, if a dog keels over, then you know the gas is collecting. I'm afraid, Mr. Gaddy, your friend is dead. (sighs) Poor Patsy. It was from the gas, wasn't it, Doc? That's what it looks like to me. Why did you go in that cavern anyway? Patsy asked me to. He ain't never seen a cave before. How far did you go in? Well, it didn't seem like very far, but all of a sudden we lost our way. Where was that? Well, how do I know whereabouts it was if we was lost? We tried to trace our way back, but it wasn't no use. Patsy started to get scared. It's kind of funny to see a big guy like that get scared. Yes, he is rather big, isn't he? Yeah, six foot four. The mob used to call us Mutt and Jeff. And then what happened? Well, I was a little scared myself, but we stuck together. You know, walking in the dark with only my flash from the car. All of a sudden, Pat's keeled over. From the gas? Yeah, that's what I figured. His head hit on a rock, and I guess that just about finished him off. I suppose you reckon yourself pretty lucky, mister. Yeah, sure. I figure it's because I'm only five foot three that I got out of there alive. The gas must have just been about a foot over my head. Yeah, And what do you think about that, Doc Melville? I think you better arrest Mr. Gaddy for the murder of his friend Patsy. What was the flaw in Gaddy's story? Do you know it? In a moment, we'll hear from Lem and Dr. Melville. Whenever I feel like a sweaty slob... There is one assurance that gives me peace of mind. Right guard deodorant. Just one wipe under each armpit, and I am good to go for days. Heck, I don't even need to shower for one whole week. That's how good right guard is. 
White Gar Deodorant. And now, let's see whether you're as observant as Lem and the Doctor. Hey, Corpa, let me put my hands down, they're tired. When you're in Green Gap's jail, not before. Ah, I don't get it. It was a good story. I still can't figure out how you found out. Lem tells me they used to take dogs into the cavern because the gas is heavier than air. It collects on the floor. If you really met gas, you would have keeled over first before your pal Patsy. Huh. Well, what do you know? I tell ya, nowadays in this murder racket, ya needs a college education. Enjoy the selection of poetry by Todd Lewis, Atonement, featuring Noah Bronstein, Liam Huff, and Tony Weisinger. The politicians lied to us. Vote for me and I will be responsible. We voted for them. And they blamed events for their own shortcomings. The buck stops here is a despair-filled lie. A monumental deception with a magnitude that blares forth the inescapable excuse. We read their lips, and they sounded like trust. But the chant is hollow and empty. And without substance. Denial. After denial. After denial. Only postpone the inescapable truth. The time has come, my friends. To deny the politicians. And do what they are too proud to do. When no politician claims fault, we must be responsible. We have the answer to the inescapable truth. The forest fire does not implode because we deny setting the spark. The fire of hatred and injustice will not abate when we look in another direction. The fire that consumes us, like St. Elmo's fire from the pits of hell, knows the answer to the inescapable excuse. The answer is a simple yet humbling act. Not exclusively the right of the pious. It serves heretic and saint alike. The answer to the inescapable truth is atonement. What does it mean? What does it heal? Why must it be personal? Because it, and it alone, transforms blame into shame. And the inescapable truth into hope. The following piece has been extracted from the novel by Sarah Lazarovic, with additional text by Susan Pacillo. Its voiceover actors include Lily McCollum, Emma Harper, Emily Rosecrans, and Marie Siopi. Here now is a bunch of pretty things I did not buy. The cafe on Huntington is once again bustling with students trying desperately to grab a latte before their next class. We hear the chatter of other diners 
and the shuffling of the busy lunch crowd. Dishes and silverware can be heard being placed on the counter, and the espresso machine seems to be constantly exhaling its steamy refrain. In a corner table, just off to the side, four young women are continuing a conversation they have visited a number of times. Okay, okay, okay. Let's just start from the beginning. Stuff I I want. want. (laughs) How many times did I say this in my youth? A A million. Seriously, what did I want? Dollhouse with an elevator. An easel would drastically improve the quality of my life. Have you heard of Teddy Ruxpin? His verbal skills would no doubt improve my own. And I am thoroughly convinced Connect Four and a cell phone would be good for my brain. I began to define my person by what my person wanted. I also evolved from a loose whiner to a targeted persuader. Let's Let's start start from from the the beginning. beginning. I was raised in a house that we owned. Dallas, Texas. Phoenix AZ, baby. The New York City suburbs. I was raised in a pocket full of wealth, surrounded by poverty, and had to be bused to a local magnet school. On On the the other other side of the tracks. As a result, I spent my childhood feeling either sheepishly wealthy or embarrassingly poor. So, I became preoccupied with stuff. Who had it? Who didn't? I mostly craved scrunchy socks. Yes. <laughs> my friends had drawers filled with them, and I was only allowed two pairs. Tragic. But I would have gladly sacrificed a kidney for more. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't much to do in my cutout and perfectly crafted suburbia, so I decided to become a, a mall rat. rat. I knew the mall by heart. Old Navy to your left, the Gap to your right, Abercrombie straight ahead. Egg rolls and smoothies. <gasps> Victoria's Secret! Oh, shut, shut up! up. Oh, my God. Outside of the Concrete Kingdom, the, the mall. I began to venture out on weekends by going to the Thunderbird swap shop with my grandma. I delighted in the cheap, tacky plastic trinkets. It was all crap. <laughs> but. It was bizarre crap my friends and schoolmates didn't have. Exactly. I delighted in the cheap. I never brought a lot of money, and I always got change to take home. Ah, yes. One of my first unsupervised purchases. The horse watch. Of course. (laughs) Where the minute hand was a horse that limped (laughs) over a jump. Uh Uh-huh. Mint green Mm. with a pink face. Yeah, that broke after a week. <laughs> oh, I also got that shiny gold uh, rock <laughs> that turned into a cheap transformer that mumbled something, I mean, unintelligible. Useless, really. But I, I was, was beginning, beginning to, to define, define myself. myself. Yeah, stay tuned for the big reveal. In seventh grade, my family somehow worked some unseen magic, and we took a trip to London and Paris. I was so jealous. Everything I saw simply blew my mind. I brought home a pair of green Doc Martens with a chintzy pattern of fruit. Cute. They invoked awe in friends and strangers. This, I decided, would be my ticket to redefining myself as a bohemian, renegade feminist who didn't take crap 
from anyone. <laughs> I would be sure to carry an overloaded ring of keys that would flop rhythmically from my back pocket of my stylishly ripped and faded jeans with the cuff rolled only so high. Of course. I would be sure to have one straggly piece of hair just in front of my left eye to complete the wow factor. Wow. <laughs> and I would only nod and mumble when I was spoken to. Mm-hmm. Sure. That will work. Well, that's what I told myself then. High, high school. school. <laughs> With high school came the freedom of mobility. I would drive for hours with my friends just to find the perfect thrift shop and record stores. Mm. We found the golden ticket of cool stuff. Punk albums, posters, lava lamps, and incense. We found this place called Howard's, which sold old man corduroy slacks, cat-eyed sunglasses, cool. and red alligator pumps from the 1940s. Ooh. Even though I had abandoned my beloved mall, I was still that person that was consumed by stuff. stuff. I would add miles to the odometer of my mom's minivan just to find the perfect vintage t-shirt. Who was I becoming? Look, it's not rocket science. Everybody tries to fit in. The so-called popular kids were all bullies, and it wasn't until I had classes with some of the kids that I used to make fun of that I realized they were actually the best kids in school. Uh, yeah, we were. <laughs> <laughs> I quickly began to redefine cool. Does your mind ever play tricks on you? Yeah, all, all the, the time. time. Right now. Well... I spend a lot of days feeling like I wasn't normal. I, I suppose we could ask what, what is, is normal? normal. I would often keep these thoughts to myself because I didn't want anyone to think I was a weirdo. I guess we all have strange thoughts. I've always been afraid that I would say the wrong thing and in that exact moment, someone would post it somewhere on the outer stratosphere of cruel virtual postings. Sometimes I just remained quiet. It drove me crazy when someone would say, Oh, you're so quiet. Of course, in that moment, I was screaming, using my indoor voice. Yeah, so get your greasy, judgmental face out of my field of vision. I don't know why it happens. Maybe it's out of boredom. Or perhaps I'm looking for something. My mind has a tendency to wander off on its own, and I am blissfully captivated by a few moments, by something, by nothing. Like that time I followed the wrong family at the zoo <laughs> after I had rubbed up against a llama, fed peanuts to the elephants, Aww. and marveled at the baby chimps. I look up, and I can't really tell where I am. Oh, no. I will say I am thoroughly delighted to not have been kidnapped, had my head shaved, and been sold to the highest bidder. Always a win. <laughs> no, they seemed very nice. I think they were from the Midwest. What, what was, was I looking, I looking for, for anyway? anyway? When I look back at all this time I spent trying to accumulate stuff and being a consumer, I get really depressed. So... I have decided to rebrand this time in my life as identity formation. Hmm. 
I knew that I did not want to be that samey-same gap girl in true cookie-cutter fashion. No, I was cultivating the me that I wanted to be. With my nose pressed up against the glass of this university, it was time to explore different stuff. As I packed for school, I started with my outfits. A paint-splattered shirt with old man corduroys. <laughs> I was trying really hard to look like I don't care. Next, Next. <laughs> my spaghetti strap tops with bra straps showing to be worn no matter the weather in Boston. And the shortest shorts I could find, usually with innumerable threads hanging down. That outfit just pissed off my dad. Classic. <laughs> Then I really got bold. Mom's old paisley dress with some fringe suede boots. Oh, that sounds cute. Mm, no, no, <laughs> not a look. Unless I went back in time to San Francisco circa 1968. <laughs> Next. All, All black. My half-assed attempt at a lazy goth look. <laughs> then I found an old funky moo-moo from a thrift store, which I then wore with clogs. It shouted, look at me, I'm a bohemian artist. Yeah, from another planet. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So I returned to a paint-splattered shirt with old man corduroys, because, you know what? I, I really, really don't, don't care. care. You know, I read once that unless you're born with an amazing personality and unfathomable beauty... Are you saying that me? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> you spend at least 67% of your adolescence fretting about what you look like. And you spend the rest of the time eating Doritos and ogling the teen pop stars who have remarkably good skin. It's just so shiny. It's just Photoshop. Mm. If you are of normal constitution... You cry a lot. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Covering your jeans with safety pins tells the world you're a badass. Oh, yeah. And who would deny a growing creature that one small protection against the cruelties of life? <laughs> All the stuff we have talked about and made important in our young lives, no matter how frivolous, was, in those moments, important. It's often that stuff that our memory holds fast to for the rest of our lives. Oh, my hot pink Converse high tops. <laughs> my orange peasant blouse with the embroidered sleeves. Oh. My first jean jacket with my entire pin collection. <laughs> they, they hold, hold a, a place for us. They conjure who we once were. And then they make their way to another sibling or the box headed to Goodwill, or just hidden under the bed, marking time. When I first moved away from home and arrived here at Northeastern, I had a shopping awakening. Every purchase was a revelation. I now had a budget, and it was up to me how to allocate my funds. Late night pizza at B-Hop or fancy coffees at Starbucks. No, 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 wait. How about noodles at Wagamama and a trip to Whole Foods? Ooh. Is it lunch at Panera or a sushi roll from Curry? Ooh. Ooh. Or is it another graphic t-shirt with RBG's image in neon colors? Yes. It's crucial to not simply seek stuff by going off the rails in a particular moment of consumer liberation. Everything is so accessible, 
And those rayon dresses at $8 a pop are so cheap. Exactly. I can remember the excitement of becoming my own shopper, the thrill of the deal. But my quest to accumulate more stuff on my own dime was being challenged by an inner guilt, most likely developed from my time on campus and becoming educated about exactly how and where my clothes were being made, their sustainability, and the impoverished beings who were making them. I suddenly experienced a consumer conscience. How much stuff did I own? And how huge was my own personal carbon footprint? This question haunted me, and I really wanted to answer responsibly. So I stopped, took a breath, and made a visual representation of my consumerism. On one end of the continuum was minimizing and decluttering, and on the other was collecting and hoarding. I was determined to find more meaning in my life and find that place in between, the happy happy medium. medium. Everything was changing. I I was was changing. changing. I no longer wanted to define myself as the person who owned this or that, or had by how many pairs of ballet flats I had collected. (laughs) I wanted to instead celebrate my collection of memories. Trips with friends, Sunday dinner with my family, backpacking somewhere exotic. Photos with old college roommates. Choosing an abandoned cat from a shelter. Oh, baby. I was looking for sustenance from nature. Mm. Good food, fabulous conversations, and the passion for developing an ear for Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, Aretha, (laughs) Joni Mitchell, and Dylan. (laughs) I wanted to try my hands at new things, broaden my personal scope rather than fill up my closet. I can remember my early days of filling up my first apartment with furniture from Ikea. I ran through that warehouse like a maniac, picking out the furniture I would live with for the next two years in under the time it took to watch a rerun of The Office. And, of course, I grabbed a pretzel and some Swedish meatballs before I left. I somehow remember all the furniture being part of the Flagellark collection. (laughs) And, if nothing else, you can be sure all of your Flagellark will fall apart in two years. Mm, I think it was closer to a year and a half. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But wait a minute. What college student or recent grad paying off 250 k in loans can spring for some real furniture? Well, we buy what our means allow at each stage of life, instead of buying for life when our means allow. Wait, 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 wait. Deep. Say that again. We buy what our means allow at each stage of our life, instead of buying for life when our means allow. Oh. oh. New, New plan. plan. So, I have, without regret, put things... Neatly on a shelf. Securely on a counter. Or back on the rack. And I have made it a point to celebrate the bunch of pretty things I did not buy. The cushy call of a comfy, overpriced ruby red chair. Anything with sparkles. Mm-hmm. And... Even if those leg warmers are organic and plant-dyed, 
get over them. <laughs> you are never going to wear them when you move back to the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was then. This, this is, is now. now. So where do all of these thoughts about early me and now me go? What exactly am I supposed to do with these questions? And more importantly, what am I going to do with all my stuff? I've discovered the more mature inner me becomes, I'm at least taking the time to ask myself, do I really need this item? What else could I do with this money? It seems a bit crazy, but I recently read that the average American buys 68 items of clothing per year. Do you you mean me? I mean all of us. For the price of one indie rock dress, I can buy 10 sweatshop rock dresses. But part of my maturing is that I do not want to be a glutton for rayon. Quality, not quantity. Isn't this just a larger statement about irresponsible consumerism? Okay, well, how many credit cards do you guys have? They scare me. Do I have to tell you? Three. Okay, and how much do you owe on each? Again, do I have to tell you? That's okay, baby. That's why they scare me. (laughs) I just paid one off today. Okay, well, look, I know that I am very good at buying many useful things, but I never learned how to buy one useful thing. These are baby steps, I know, Last year, just before COVID, my parents put my childhood home on the market. I watched them fight in a panic about what to keep because their goal was to live a more simplistic life in a smaller space. My brothers and I had to rush home one weekend in order to go through every drawing we had ever created every torn ticket from the long list of Broadway shows we had seen, every trophy, crayon, and lunchbox from our history on the planet. I panicked. (laughs) I do not have a house of my own yet, and when I saw the mounds of what I had collected, well, no, not collected, hoarded, I felt trapped as if in a storage container of old wishes and... Unfinished projects. For what? I hooked my arm around the nearest moving box, grabbed a Sharpie, and wrote in bold letters, Goodwill. Wow. And I never looked back. Memories are for keeping, but will holding (coughs) on to the ticket stub from Dear Evan Hansen make me remember the show in greater detail? (coughs) Wasn't it all the other wonderful details of that day? That will hold the meaning? You make it sound so simple. But for me, it isn't. I have always operated under the idea that throwing things away was simply wasteful. Because there's always something that can be done with that. I will admit, one of the grossest things I have ever seen was the hallway the day I moved out of my freshman dorm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like a shrine to waste. (laughs) Hastily bought and easily discarded crap. I know that I contributed to that ripped clothing pile, the halogen lamp snapped in two. That was a good night. Oh, my God. I'll (laughs) admit it. It was a year of misguided shopping. I am smarter now. But I admit, although I am not a shopaholic, 
I am only in my infancy, stepping away from things I do not need. Oh, these shoes are fabulous! And look, the laces sparkle! No. No, no, no. They are very expensive and poorly made in terrible conditions. <laughs> the guilt of being wasteful is now present on my mind. Adding unnecessarily to the landfill of stuff was omnipresent. I want to like myself in the most minimalist terms. But how? I am continuing to debate and struggle. It's hard. <laughs> I do think it's unfortunate that shopping becomes synonymous with guilt and frivolity so early in life. Without a proper handbook for how to buy, I too have learned through my mistakes. Foolish purchases, buckets of wasted money, and then self-recrimination. So, I decided to brush off my former life of poor purchases and whittle my belongings to fit in a stylish backpack. Mm. I discovered a different love. People and places, but not things. I want to be able to flee when I see a cheap rite for a hotel in the Azores or say yes, yes in, in my, my most convincing voice. When someone invites me to Aspen for a long weekend, no fuss and no muss, just Go! Free myself from those insidious holdings we seem to answer to. This is the woman I am choosing to be. So, here I am, on co-op as an investment analyst for Fidelity. I know it would be senseless, foolish, and downright crazy to give up shopping. I mean, look at me. Shapes change, and so does the need for a splash of finery. Sure. <laughs> well, from my mini cubicle on the second floor, I can hear quite a bit of comparing. Jewelry, shoes, bars, neighborhoods, cross-shoulder bags. And it is exhausting trying to keep up with someone else's agenda of what they have determined is important. I wonder, when I'm 30, will I look back on my 20-year-old self and ask why I never had a dime to spare? Yes, probably. <laughs> I mean, can you say Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> Several times. Look. <laughs> The neat thing about resistance is the freedom it grants. The time I used to spend walking around Marshalls or H&M is now given over to other cool activities. Like tweeting and then making fun of Twitter. <laughs> no, you goon! Like connecting with real people in real time. I mean, sure, that has become more challenging recently, but my worth and value is not in a store or online. I've been saying yes to new adventures more often and paying less attention to the outfit and more attention to the rich connections I do have and those I would like to continue to make. God, this probably sounds corny, but uh, what I love best is that time often reveals a solution to what I need that doesn't involve buying anything. That's freeing. And it is one less thing I'm needing to juggle. Hey, do you guys remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Is that the object in motion thing? Mm, maybe? No. Oh. Yeah, of course I know it. I'm a psych major. Okay, well, recently I saw a modified version of his pyramid called the Biarchy of Needs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So the lowest level is use what you have. For this one, you may need to take an inventory of just how many pairs of sneakers you have before moving to step two. Don't have it and need it, 
borrow it. Speaking of which, do you have my blue halter top? Um, I'm pretty sure it's mine. Like, you gave it to me, I think. Oh, so then these shoes are mine. Okay, well, oh. okay, I know, I know. This one's a bit dicey because people get wiggly about their items not being returned in the same shape as when you borrowed them. So we problem solve. Next, we swap. Maybe exchange a few items midway during the semester so you can have a fresh wardrobe without spending a penny. Oh, yeah, we should do that. Right? Be thrifty. Shop at Goodwill, Savers, the Garment District yeah. for some absolute steals. Mm-hmm. Another way to be thrifty is to make your own clothes or accessories. Crafty queen. <laughs> <laughs> and if that doesn't fly, at least learn some basic sewing techniques for hems, buttons, so that items do not need to be abandoned and thrown out for one little boo-boo. And right at the top is buy. Only as a last resort when the rest of the list has been exhausted. Okay, as soon as I get home, I am going to open a trash bag and take a peek in my very scary closet in there. <laughs> and start to make a pile of outfits to sell. Nice. Let's try to remember stuff is just that. Stuff. Having more or less of it will not change who we are or what contribution we'll make in this crazy world. It's time to collect the infinite riches of this one life that are not found in a closet or a store or on Amazon. I am choosing to invest in myself. And each of you. Mm. <laughs> Me too. And we will always look back at all the pretty things we, we did, did not buy. buy.